on my notes. A little bit of a church history to begin with, if we can. Born in uh, 1369 in Bohemia, that's uh, northeast uh, Croatia as we know it uh, now, John from Husenek, as he was called, uh, came from a very, very poor background. Now, he was a pre-Reformation reformer. And if you don't know what that is, ask Ash, because he can give you an hour on that afterwards. Anyway, at age 20, he changed his name to John Huss. Huss meaning and sounding like, in the language, goose. So he was known for a great deal of time as the goose. Now, let me shift you forward a hundred years or more to Martin Luther, who's probably known, better known to a number of you. He wrote and referred to John Huss being burnt at the stake. And Luther simply wrote, he said, the goose was cooked. Which is a term of phrase we still use today but finds its origins in the martyrdom of John Huss, the goose. Now, when the day came for the goose to be cooked, this was the 15th of July, 1415, John Huss was taken to the cathedral in Prague. He had formerly been preaching there, gathering thousands of people to hear the word taught. And it was quite unique at the time because... One, he faithfully taught God's word, not obscured by kind of Catholic teaching. Also, he taught in the language of the people. And that was really significant at the time. Because the language that priests would have spoken at the time was, was in Latin, and hardly anyone understood that. And those two reasons, he got, he got himself into a whole heap of trouble. They pushed him out of the cathedral in Prague. He had to go into the countryside, start writing his sermons that would be read in the cathedral in Prague, but not by him because he was in such there. But in the end, enough was enough. And they brought him back to the cathedral in Prague. He was dressed in the entirety of the, the, the priestly garb. Every little bit that they could find, they put on him. And then they individually took one piece off after another. To essentially say, you are no longer a priest. We defrock you, essentially. Now the bishop in charge, and it was at a council, the Council of Constance, where all this happened. He ordered then Huss to be taken to the stake and to be tied there before he were to be burnt. When the goose was about to be cooked then, he prayed these very famous words. Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. And Lord Jesus, have mercy on my enemies. And that is exactly what Jesus encourages. No, let me correct that. Look at it in verse 44. It's what he commands of his followers love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Let me tell you, my friends, this, this is so hard. This is so hard. And today, at times, will feel like a punch in the guts. Maybe you might even say, I quite like that in comparison to this kind of teaching, as we go through it. C.S. Lewis, even writing about this Sermon on the Mount, wrote to a, a critic of his uh, about this section of Matthew's Gospel that we're looking at. He said this about this whole sermon. He said, as for caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. 
After all, who enjoys being knocked on the face with a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage, the Sermon on the Mount, with tranquil pleasure. He's right, isn't he? Because Jesus' teaching here is a radical teaching. It is hard, really hard at times. It will feel sledgehammer-like at points. And I think today is kind of chapter 5. It's, it's kind of the radical crescendo, if you like, of the whole chapter. It will be difficult. Love your enemies. It's exactly what the goose prayed just before he was burnt at the stake. More importantly, it is what Jesus continually prayed as nails were being driven through his wrists and his ankles and as, as he was hung and tortured on a Roman cross. Remember what he said and prayed? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's actually written in the imperfect tense. I don't know if you knew that, but it, it means he probably prayed it again and again and again. But is this therefore an impossible ideal? After all, can we really love our enemies and pray for them? And that's a really active kind of love, isn't it? Now, I want you to imagine, this will be tough, but I want you to imagine it if you can. Imagine the bombs and the shootings that happened 285 miles south of here in Paris happened here. What if your friend, what if your loved one, what if your colleague, your neighbour, what if? And as you look down at the devastation, Jesus whispers in your ear, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How would you respond? I tried to go through that this week a little bit. and My responses have been something like this at times. What would I say to Jesus? I'd probably say, get real. Maybe even go away. I, I, I'm enjoying the hatred here. Be realistic. Or maybe just a blanket no. It's just too hard. I can't do that. I shouldn't be expected to do that. We see that kind of thinking was the norm of the time. God's people have once again distorted us with all the previous sections that we've looked at in Matthew 5. They'd taken the Old Testament and they just subtly kind of changed it a bit. And here again in verse 43, he points out, out how far that they had distorted God's word. Again, he is teaching a radical, unlimited love. We'll come to that in a moment. What they were teaching at the time was a very limited love. Look at verse 43. Again, the, each section is introduced this way. You have heard that it was said. That is, this is what the man on the street understands. This is what is being practiced out there on the, you know, in everyday life. This is what the rabbis and the scribes and the teachers of the law, this is what they were teaching as well. Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But interestingly, both of those instructions there, love your, is, that's a subtle distortion. And one's even an addition. The first thing, look at it, love your neighbour. It comes from Leviticus, chapter 19, 
verse 18. You can have a look if you like, or if you can look at it later. Let me read it to you. It says, Leviticus 19, verse 18, says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour, hear it, as yourself. Do you spot the difference? Where before you were to love your neighbour as yourself, that high, you know, I love myself a lot, and therefore it's just been changed, subtly modified. Now just love your neighbour. But then, why the addition of the hate your enemies? Because it's not there in the original teaching. But it was standard teaching of the day. How did they get to that kind of understanding? Well, scholars kind of point two directions here. Firstly, they believe that the term neighbour, they kind of like said, yeah, we understand what we mean by the word neighbour. It's just going to include those kind of, the people local to us, in our comfortable space. Basically, the Jews around us. They had this limited application of what the word neighbour meant. But also, secondly, they saw within the scriptures, they saw various times when God had, for example, uh, you know, taken on the people of Canaan in the conquest of Joshua. All these terrible kind of seemingly atrocities. And they said, well, look, look what God does. They'd even perhaps turn to the implicatory Psalms, which you looked at last summer, and saw, and saw all of that kind of justice coming about. They said, well, look, this is what God does. Surely we should do it. And the mistake they had made was taking the corporate and right judgment <clears throat> of God. And they'd taken that as an excuse for their personal, individual hatred of those who were not like themselves. Perhaps also, as we know our own hearts, I don't know if you're anything like, you're like me on this one, but if, if someone states a positive, or if you state a positive, love your neighbour, you by implication take the, the, the opposite, don't you? Well, of course, it's, it's a rational argument. If, if you're to love your neighbour, what are you to do with your enemy? Well, of course you're to hate them, because that's the way the human heart works. And I guess many people would say that's probably what had happened here. Now, you might think, oh, these people are a bit perverted, they're a bit strange. How would they possibly make that conclusion? You might be thinking that, but you also might be thinking, oh, that rings true. I do that as well. Now, in the teaching, look at it. Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. What did they ignore? Let me just run through a couple of passages. You can look at them later if you like. Exodus 23, for example. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5 says this. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. It's not really a hate, hatred kind of thing there, is it? If you see a donkey of someone who, um, who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Similarly in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. It's hardly hatred, is it? See, hate your enemies, this phrase that they brought in, you see, was neither explicitly or implicitly in the teaching of the Old Testament. But by Jesus' time, it was the norm. There's even evidence to suggest within the kind of the second, third century BC kind of Jewish communities that it was considered a really righteous thing to appropriately hate your enemies. You kind of worked out who they were, and if you properly hated them, that was seen as a really good and righteous thing. 
one there commentary pointed out that in the Qumran community, which is famous for some of the scrolls that we found there a number of years back, they had a saying which went like this, love the brother, hate the outsider. Anyone who basically isn't like you. Now, I want to say we don't do that, do we? We're not like that, are we? We live in the most welcoming and tolerant society. We love people equally, of all backgrounds. Just look at the coffee shops around this area, it's brilliant, I love seeing them, as you know. Mums, they're brilliant. They invite everyone in the playground, they look around and they look to the people a bit lonely, but maybe they're just a bit not quite like them, and they invite them all. It's wonderful to see, you know. Everyone's included in the group. Perhaps let's take it to the office. You know, it's like you go out for your office drinks, or you go out for, you know, on a social or something, something like that. You can look anywhere, if you're honest. We are such a loving society. We never see people being pushed aside. Loneliness isn't an issue at all in our culture. People aren't kind of pushed aside because they're slightly different ever. Now, I'm sure you have picked up the sarcasm. Same goes for church though, doesn't it? We love everyone equally, don't we? All the time we're like this. We're well known for it because never does anyone feel alone. Never does anyone feel not part of things. Well, Jesus is walking into that kind of thinking with an absolute sledgehammer here, I think. I think we will feel the pain at some point because... What Jesus teaches here is so radically different. What they were teaching at the time was a limited love. Oh, love your neighbour, those around you, those like you, those who enjoy the things that you do, but anyone else, don't worry. Perhaps we see it in our own hearts. I've certainly seen it in mine. But Jesus teaches, let's look at that together now, verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. It's an unlimited love. Put it there on your sheets. An unlimited love. And you see how radical this is. I was even found myself asking myself this week, you know, who really does this? Really? Let me quote from uh, Kent, Kent Hughes. He's a particular commentator on this uh, passage. His uh, commentary, I think, is particularly helpful. He kind of showed how strange this might look. And he pointed out this, he said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good, that's human. And we looked at that last week, didn't we, with the the Lex Talianus, that law of retaliation. If someone does that, you use an appropriate uh, giving back of justice or of love. Law of retaliation. So to return good for good is human. But to return good for evil, that is divine. It's a very beautiful thing, isn't it? Now, remember, to the average person on the street, this is utter madness. Really, it is, isn't it? It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. We have to retaliate. We have to hate. We have to bring down our enemies. Love enemies? That's just kind of crazy talk, isn't it? 
But Jesus is teaching here a love without limits, an unlimited love, and it is beautifully distinctive. And it is God glorifying, as we will see. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There is an active nature to this love. And I want to ask you, do you do that? Once again, this is in the realm of our personal relationships, not the relationship with the state. What about the person in your office who isn't very pleasant to you or to anyone? You may be, you may be polite and you may smile when it's kind of professionally expedient for you to do so, but in reality you are that passive-aggressive, wonderful British trait that we have. You moderately hate them. You don't like anyone to see that. You moderately make things difficult and awkward for them in the office. Though you do it subtly. And you do it with a smile on your face. And you think you're very clever. We can often justify ourselves putting on this kind of thin, godly veneer. But in reality, it, it can so often hide a boiling heart of hate and enmity. And I think what Jesus is saying here is it just doesn't wash with him. You are to love them. And Jesus goes even further saying you are to pray for them. That is your heart must be for their good. John Chrysostom, a third century Archbishop of Constantinople and an important early church father. Again, if you want to know about them, ask Ash. He'd be great on that. He once called this responsibility to pray for our enemies the very highest summit of self-control. The very highest summit of self-control. And I don't think it's wrong, because I've had to think through this and pray through this this week. Yeah, I agree. As I mentioned earlier, it's what Jesus did on the cross, but it is a high and demanding calling for his followers to emulate. It is a radical, unlimited love. And Jesus knows that. Let me just take a little bit of a side, okay? Just think about the Sermon on the Mount, what we looked at in chapter 5 so far. You may be thinking, oh, why are we doing this? This is so discouraging. I'm nothing like this. How can I ever be like this? And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a, as a set of unachievable ideals, I want to challenge you and just say, do you trust Jesus? That is, if you do, you have to trust the fact that he isn't teaching something that he believes that you can never do. He is teaching you something that he is longing for you to do, empowering you to do all the reasons that he mentions. If he, if he were to just teach something and say, I'm going to teach it, and you're never going to be able to do this, how cruel would that be? It would be like, you know, wrapping up a Christmas present for a child at Christmas. Yeah, beautiful presents. Letting them open it and then say, right, I'll take that from you. You know, it would be awful, wouldn't it? You want them to see it, you want them to appreciate it, but then you take it away and say, this was never designed for you. This is not yours. Now, the Sermon on the Mount should be encouraging if you're a Christian here today because Jesus is teaching something for you. And he believes in you. And he believes and has empowered you in such a way that you can do it. 
He's done everything for you, in you, so that you can live this out. Not without fault like him, but you can do it. And he believes in you, that you can do it. And so Jesus gives us two reasons why we should do this. Have a look at them, at verse 45. Firstly, because it makes us like God, and then verse 46 and 47, because it distinguishes us as a believer in this world. But that is, it's the salty, lighty thing again. Firstly then, it makes us like God. Look at verse 44 and 45. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous as well. See, we are to love our enemies. We are to decide to do so in our deeds, in our words, in our prayers even. Verse 45, why? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, if it is God's nature to love in this unlimited way, if we are his, if we, if we are his, it ought to be so for us as well. In a sense, it's the proof of our relationship to the Father. We are his children. But what does this love look like? And who do we have to apply it to? Because if you're anything like me, you're going, oh, surely God. No, no, I don't have to apply it to that person. Do you really know them? They're such they're shockers. Well, look at it, verse 45 at the end there. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, the point being made by Jesus here is that God's love is totally impartial. It is an indiscriminate love here. The sun doesn't rise on just the good. You don't see people walking down the street with the sun on them and some of them just in darkness, do you? Again, likewise, you don't have, you know, unlike the cartoons tell us, people with just little mini rain clouds over them and the rain coming down on top of them. It doesn't work like that, does it? These are God's blessings to all humanity. The sun and the rain are provisions for all. They are totally impartial in that way. They are known as gifts of common grace for all. Undeserved gifts of grace, but to all humanity. Now, we must be clear, this is not gifts of saving grace, which enables us to turn in repentance and faith and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's distinct from that. Jesus is saying this is to be the standard, though, of Christian love. It is, it is for all. We have to be totally indiscriminate in the way that we love. But also, he says, in verse 46 and 47, it distinguishes the believer from the world. See, if we want to know how to be practically that kind of salt and light, that preservative and light in a dark and decaying world, have a look here, look no further, love your enemies, pray for them. Why? Verse 46, he shows us how it's important. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, when Jesus is teaching this, everyone who heard this illustration would go, oh yeah, I get that, straight away. But let me just give you a bit of tax collector background, if I can. Because this was a serious sledgehammer. Tax collectors were given a province by the emperor. Uh, an amount was stipulated that the tax collector had to gather and then give back to the emperor. But anything that he took above that amount, he could pocket himself. 
It was a lucrative business. And therefore, tax collectors were known as legal robbers of the time. They conspired with Rome, and they were Jews who were essentially ripping off their own. And Jesus is saying, as they were understood, they're the lowest of the low in society. But even they love their friends, who are the lowest of the low with them. Even they love them, those who are like them. You see, the point that Jesus is making with these tax collectors, if you love people who are like you, he's saying, and? It's like a sarcastic clap. And? Who? Why? Everyone does that. That's nothing. But if you love your enemies, wow. Now that is beautiful. As Kent Hughes put it, that is divine. We are a church made up of very similar people, as you might describe us. Culturally, we are a homogeneous unit. And we live in a very homogeneous area. My question is, who do you love? And if it is only people like yourself, Jesus is essentially giving you a sarcastic slow clap. Yeah, big deal. Think again of the workplace. Who is the one who is really difficult to love? Who is the annoying one? Who is the one that doesn't pull their weight? Who is the smelly one? The rude one? The one who mocks you for your faith? The one who teases you about your lifestyle choices? Listen to Jesus. Love your enemies. And pray for them. Because that's beautiful. And that is divine. And people will see. Because this is what spirit-filled people do. They love with this unlimited love. And to nail this home, Jesus finishes. Look at verse 47. And if, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And the big point here is, I want to finish today, is this. Jesus made it again and again in all of the illustrations. He's pushing you to do what? More. What are you doing more than others? Christians, brothers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you doing more than everyone out there? How do you expect to commend the Lord Jesus Christ to anyone if you're just the same? Whether it's your anger or your lust or your words, whether you retaliate in personal relations as we looked at last week, whether you love all people around you, Jesus says, what are you doing? More, more than anyone else. Because if you're doing no more, I think Jesus is not only saying, please consider that, but he's saying you're missing out. Because who gets the blessing? Think, you know, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 so far. Who's the blessed happy one who inherits the kingdom of God at the beginning of the chapter? The humble, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The one, that one, is the one who does more. 
And is that you? Does anyone point into your life and sort of go, wow, that's not normal. That's not everyone in the street's doing. That's not everyone at work's doing. You're not stabbing people in the back. Wow. (coughs) Where do they point and go, you're doing more. Because that's what unlimited love looks like. And Jesus is commanding us here to practice it. Now, we've got to be clear, it's not a natural love. It's not like the love of a, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, a wife, your children, your mum, your dad. This is an agape love. It is a God-like love. And it finds its origins in your mind and your will. You have to will this love. Jesus commands you to do so. Another C.S. Lewis quote, if I can, in in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity, to finish. In a sense, it's the beautiful more. But he's showing you why this is so important. What are you doing more than others? He says this. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbour. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings, and the Christian only has charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. I had a friend like that. He died over the summer. And I found it extraordinary to think, I actually liked him in the end. But I had to force myself over many years to do that to will it, pray about it. As you decide to love more, you will become more, more like Christ, wanting to love more. And now Jesus finishes, as we close now, with the biggest sledgehammer of all. Look at verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, before you start beginning to inconsolably cry and weep at this stage, thinking, this is never going to happen. Woe is me. I am terrible. And so on. Feelings of inadequacy pouring through your veins. No. Note the critical word in the final sentence. It is the word Father. Jesus is calling us here, his adopted children of a heavenly Father, to a special life. And the word perfect here is used elsewhere, whether it's in Leviticus or many other places, as holy, mature, or fully grown. Yes, we are to be like our Heavenly Father. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we are not on our own. We've been saved by the perfect one, clothed in his righteousness. And therefore we are adopted children of a Heavenly Father, We are special people. 
called to a special life, empowered with a special power. Now that is not arrogance, because we are those who are poor in spirit, who think lowly of ourselves, but in thinking very, very highly of God, we, trusting his Son, living in the power of his Spirit, obeying his word, we love with a beautiful, divine love. It beautifully refines us and it beautifully displays God in us to the watching world. I want us to turn uh, maybe to uh, the person beside us. Uh, I'm sure there's some questions that have flown from, uh, from that. And so why don't we just, uh, two minutes, uh, chat to the person beside you. If you've got any questions in a moment, we'll kind of open up the floor and uh, we'll do kind of Q&A just for five, ten minutes. Uh, that'll be great as we finish our service. So why don't we turn to the person beside us, points that we found helpful, clarifications we want, applications we think would be helpful to be heard. Let's just chat two minutes and then we'll hear, okay? Chat away. <clears throat>